Thank you for downloading my podcast, Therapist Talking Therapy. My name is Martin Weaver. In the summer of 2022, I was asked by my professional organisation, the United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy, to contribute to their series of podcasts called My Psychotherapy Career. This is where they interview various psychotherapists who've been working for some time about how they got into psychotherapy and what they've learnt from providing psychotherapy services. And we talk for about an hour and then they edit it down to their 30-minute slot for their podcast series. And I thought it would be useful to get the original recording of the whole hour and present that here, a kind of Excel version, if you like, um, where we talk a bit more widely about issues. And some issues, of course, had to hit the editing floor simply because of time. However, in this series of podcasts, we have a bit more time in this long-form version of discussions. So I hope you enjoy this hour of my psychotherapy career unedited. Well, except for a couple of excursions and a couple of uh, interruptions that happened during our conversation. Our conversation is introduced by Helen Willingham. She's the head of content and engagement at UKCP. And then she leads me through various questions, as you'll hear. I hope you enjoy it. about your psychotherapy career I want to kick off with one question with with the main question is and that's how did you find yourself volunteering to take calls on the AIDS helpline well thank you for inviting me to have this conversation together um yeah AIDS helpline difficult to know where to point the finger to say this is where it all started I suppose I was working or volunteering on the student nightline service at Portsmouth Polytechnic, where I was studying marine biology. Um, and between Portsmouth and London, I used to sort of move between the two uh, during the early 80s. Uh, it was 1980 that I started in Portsmouth and 1980, New Year's Eve, I think, that I first went to London um, for I came out as a gay man. And so I began to use London as a kind of a playground, but also see what was happening in sort of the gay community at that time. And then after I left the college, uh, Portsmouth Polytechnic, now university, uh, in early 83, I was unemployed, looking for a job. I decided I really should do something. And of course, because I've been familiar with London for the previous three years or so, um, I drew up a list. So I had gay switchboard, the Terence Higgins Trust and the Gay Bereavement Project. And part of the reason for doing that was the nightline work had um, encouraged me to get trained to do telephone advice work for students. Uh, and I'd had two years experience doing that. And so I wanted to carry on that kind of work because I had the time and the availability. Um, and I went to Gay Switchboard. I went through their process, which was very interesting. But they, um, they declined my offer of service. And so I went to the Terence Higgins Trust, which was just getting itself organised at that time. And they were talking about setting up a, a phone line. And so because I had the experience of the nightline telephone service at Portsmouth Polytechnic, 
I was both available and I had the experience and training uh, to take the first calls on the helpline on February the 14th, 1984. Wow, so that was really, do you, do you think that was your, kind of what started really your your interest in psychotherapy then? Absolutely. I was asked um, to go on the Lightline service, partly, I think, because I'd set up a new gay soccer, gay society at Portsmouth Polytechnic. And the people there obviously saw how I ran that and said, you'd be really good at, at the Lightline service. And I said, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do that. Um, but I was persuaded to, to give it a go after a bit of training. And I found naturally, yeah, this is really useful, really worth enjoyable. Well, I suppose it was uh, an interesting counselling at that point. And there wasn't, psychotherapy was seen as a kind of more medical kind of um, intervention. Counselling was seen as much more generic. Um, and in, at college, people were called counsellors. Um, and so psychotherapy was over the horizon at that point, but it was certainly the first time I've really been involved in giving out advice uh, and guidance to people and had training in it. Yeah, thank you. And before your psychotherapy training, you worked in the NHS and helping those with HIV and AIDS. Can you tell us a bit about that and then how that led into your psychotherapy training? Yeah, um, because I'd done that work at the Terence Higgins Trust, and that got me into not just um, counselling, but also working directly with people with AIDS and their families um, and doing education work. So the whole psychotherapy uh, profession was sort of growing within me, as it were. Um, and then jobs came up in the NHS. And so I, I applied for them thinking, this is going to be an extension really of the work I've been doing at the Terence Higgins Trust. And I realized that through the THT work, I could do the politics and the policy development, and I could work in organizational systems. But working in a public body wasn't my first choice, but it was incredibly important. And I learned a lot about power, uh, influence, and about accountability. And a lot of that still stays with me today. And in fact, I think perhaps too few therapists have this experience. Uh, and the UKCP, I think, would be much more beneficial if more therapists had a broader experience in their, both their training and their, their, their work experience. And although with that NHS work, I thought, yeah, I can do this. I can talk about policy and I can talk about the development of services. It's not where my heart lies. And what I noticed was that the switchboards in the various places that I worked would get phone calls from people who were just diagnosed with HIV or HTLB3, as it was then called, or they'd been diagnosed with AIDS, or they were friends or families, and these phone calls would get passed through to me. And I found myself back in the student nightline service, counselling people, uh, referring them on to the best people, providing them with some support. And more and more, I thought, actually, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to, to direct my work. And one of the problems I found that... I couldn't find a, a philosophy, a modality that really interested me, the way I, I could accept. Um, I'd had a lot of training in person-centered, non-directive counseling and a bit of gestalt training. But when I asked people what actually they were doing, 
why they were choosing interventions or why do this rather than that. There was no real kind of grounding, no philosophy that said, this is the reason why we ask the questions that we ask. And then I found um, a colleague of mine when I worked in a local authority, I invited a trainer and this trainer was using this thing called neurolinguistic programming. And as I spoke to her, I suddenly began to realize, oh, okay, so there is something that says there's a, a codified way, it's a, not so much a scripted way, although that does help. There's a, a, a series of interventions, a process, which you can repeat and get similar results. And so that was, I thought, okay, I can go with that. So I need to get some training in that. And there was a bit of a gap between being introduced to it and then through the NHS, using my sort of management development uh, training to take the first level and the second level in neurolinguistics. So it really gave me a, a better way to focus my energies, both in my NHS work and then to think about, actually, I don't want to stay in this sort of policy development work for the rest of my life. I want to get in working directly with people. So I began the process then of thinking how I could do that. Um, and in fact, in some senses, the decision was made for me because I, um, 1996, I went into hospital with appendicitis, but I was in hospital for three weeks and had two operations. And when I came out of hospital, the NHS then said, well, we're not going to renew your contract anymore. And so I thought, okay, where do I go from here? And I've been speaking with my husband about potentially setting up a practice. And then I remember going for some interviews in the NHS to continue my NHS career. And midway through a couple of those interviews, just thinking, this isn't where you want to be. This is not what you want to do. And so it was in the middle of one of those meetings, literally in the middle of an interview, where I thought, no, we need, I need to set up a psychotherapy practice. And so I made, I made that decision and my husband supported me. And so when I left the NHS in the early 19, 1997, it was in May 1997, I set up a practice and started thinking about what else do I need? So it was a, a slow realization. Some people decide this is what I want to do and this is why I'm going to go, go and do it. For me, it was a, a, a gradual growth, a story that unfolded, taking opportunities as they arose to move into working for myself as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, it never occurred to me to, to get a job in the NHS. I think after 11 years working in the NHS, I'd had enough and I wanted to get out and get that direct contact with clients. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And then, and like you said, that 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 shift. But I want to go back a bit to one of your points that you said about how um, having broader experience can benefit um, UKCP and psychotherapists. Can you expand on that a bit? In that was that in the sense that to really understand the focus of where you want to go, or just that broad experience can be really beneficial. In working in a large organisation, and in fact, I'd even worked previous to that in the Greater London Council under Ken Livingstone, 
and I understood things about power, about influence, and about accountability. And so the whole ethics, ethical framework and ethics that we have in UKCP is about we have to be accountable to somebody. And sometimes I think therapists can work on their own a bit too much. And there's a lack of understanding of the wider consequential implications, if you like, or the unintended consequences of activities. Um, and I think it shows up where, where UKCP is still fixated in this modality thing rather than working as psychotherapists. And I think there's something about it, when one works in a large organization like local authority or, or the NHS, you get a much broader experience. You, like it or not, you come face to face with people and have to work with people from a huge range of backgrounds, a huge range of cultures, a huge range of professions and experience. And that still feeds into to my work today with individual clients. I can remember things that trainee doctors told me, that professors have told me, that management trainees have told me, that cleaners have told me in the NHS work that I did that still stays with me. And it's uh, one of the uh, saddest things when I left the NHS. Yes, I was setting up my own practice. I could be my own boss and all the stuff that we now hear about today. But I was sad to leave such a rich pool of material and experience to learn from in the NHS and local authority. There's so many people there with such broad range of experience. There's, there's always somebody who can guide you. There's always somebody who's been there. There's always somebody who can offer something. And that I found incredibly useful and gave me a, a great sense of confidence to do what I wanted to do. Thank you. And um, you said that you, it was kind of the, the mid to late 90s you, you started and then you became registered with UKCP in 2000 and then a supervisor in 2002 as well. Yeah. And then one of the things that, that, you, that you did in 2006 is you were asked to supervise the councillors at the 7th of July London Bombings Assistance Centre. Mm. Um, which was part of the humanitarian offer, um, offering to support those that were affected by the London bombings. Can you tell me a bit about this this work and, and your involvement there? Well, it's all a part of this whole unfolding story. And I guess my kind of willingness to grab opportunities when they arise and to take risks, I guess. I remember being in my therapy room with Classic FM playing when they reported that there'd been a, a massive electrical failure on the London Underground and all the delays that went with that. I didn't think much about it until a few minutes later or half an hour later, they reported the, the bus that had been bombed in Tavistock Square. And that uh, didn't have clients that day, but I left my therapy room and turned on the television. And like most people, I guess, I was kind of glued to it for the rest of the day as that whole story unfolded. And parallel to that, I was providing supervision services for Hounslow Bereavement Services, which is a low cost, community service provider. And I've been doing that since 2001, during my training as a supervisor. Because like, like all of us, we get trained, uh, we have supervision, and then people started asking me to be their supervisor. And I said, I don't know what supervisor does. I've been in supervision, but I don't know what decisions the supervisor is taking. So I went off to Birmingham University under Dr. Sue Wheeler um, and got trained as a supervisor. And part of that training, you obviously need supervisees. And that's where I approached 
Hounslow Bereavement Services. And so I was volunteering as a supervisor for that low cost uh, service. And then the coordinator, Paolo Pimentel, called me and said that his organization, Rent Bereavement Services, had won a contract to develop the rather oddly named Family Bereavement Center, which is the set the services that were set up very quickly after the July the 7th bombs. And he asked me to come and be the supervisor for um for the the new July the 7th assistance center because he'd met me in my work with Hounslow. So it's interesting how things connect in. Things happen that you can't possibly organize. You can influence. And so because of my work with Hounslow brought me to the attention of Brent Bereavement Services, and they then come and came and asked me to be a supervisor for the July the 7th Assistance Centre. Um, a bit like the work in the AIDS field in the early 80s, it was very intense. And there was that feeling of being at the centre of a, of a national project. Most of the councillors there were still in training and they were volunteers. They were very committed and very passionate. Um, they came from all different backgrounds and philosophies and, and ways of working. And my job, as I saw it, was to be very practical, grounded, and to some extent take the drama out of this intense work. You know, we, well, the councillors worked with the bereavement, the bereaved, the survivors, and the first responders, as well as other people caught up in this whole terrorist event. And I found that many of the councillors were in danger and some were developing vicarious trauma, getting traumatized themselves from the stories they were hearing and getting too involved with their clients. So I had to guide them to being a resource for their clients and not a friend or a rescuer. So I had to ground myself. And they were an excellent group uh, and they grew so much in, in the time that we spent together. And this is about, this is a bit like my work in the NHS. There was so much experience to be had in uh, an organization like the July the 7th Assistance Center because virtually everything was sort of thrown at us. And there we were in the heart of this national project, providing these services and in some senses, building the resources, building the experience as we went along. Um, and I worked with Paolo and the staff at the center uh, and went to the criminal trials as well as the inquest. And one of the most fascinating things for me was being present in the very early days of the inquest, the first few days, and seeing how that works, and hearing the audio recordings of the first responders as the details of the bombs began to filter through to them. And they slowly, as the rest of us did, began to recognize the enormity of what they were dealing with and the very dis difficult decisions that they had to make in the moment. So you can see and experience what happened from this perspective. But when you hear them talking minute by minute as it unfolded, it was a completely different experience. And that was very um, inspirational for me, but also gave me a lot of learning about what it's like to, to be involved in a, an unfolding event that you're not quite sure could go or where it might go could go anyway. And you're also not quite sure and you can't really spend much time worrying about the consequences or the negative consequences you just make the best decision you can at the time. Yeah, thank you for that. And you made a comparison with um, 
with then then thinking back to to working with with the AIDS crisis as well and I guess there's that similarity in, in that it's it's still un- unfolding and you don't know where it's going to go so the support aspect is really important and do you think you know working um back in in the 80s and supporting with the AIDS helpline do you think that um kind of helped or drew you into to working with the um, with the bereavement center as well well undoubtedly um and if we track back even further go back to 1975 i was just turned 15 and my father died from stomach cancer and he was what 48 at the time and going back to school there was no support i think a teacher said how are things at home and that was the extent of the kind of mental health support in those days and so that obviously taught me about life about what happens that people can be taken away not necessarily that they want to be taken away because A couple of people did wonder and did ask me, why was I not more angry that my father had died? And I think I remember saying, well, you know, it's not as if he decided, it wasn't his choice. And so I had then to rely on myself. And the AIDS work, of course, very personal. Um, If I think about back in the 80s, it was a kind of um, a, a, a classic stereotype in a sense. There we are. I'm a gay man in the 1980s, so I'm 20 years old. I'm six foot four, nearly two meters white, English and middle class. Up until then, gay men were largely p- portrayed as feminine and weak and somewhat pathetic. If, if you ever watch Are You Being Served, the John Inman kind of character. And in fact, people have often said to me and still occasionally do, well, Martin, you don't look gay. So I've had to deal with that sense of personal identity and then resourcing myself, coming to London, seeing this issue, this need was happening and thinking, actually, yeah, um, I think I can do something here. I'm used to having the stresses and I can understand death and the closeness of that. Um, Perhaps that's a bit naive. I think at the age of 20, we've probably all done things without thinking too much about the the consequences. Um, But I suppose if you, um, or if we, if we thought too much about the detail of the future, maybe we'd be too fearful for doing anything. Um, so I think doing that, and then my my experience in the NHS as an employee and in the NHS as a patient, developed that set of uh, resiliences, if you like. Um, and then bringing that so to my psychotherapeutic practice, and then, when I was asked to be the supervisor for July the 7th centre, thinking, yeah, this is, this is kind of what I, what I would experience for. Um, sometimes my supervisees are confused about the work they're doing with the client, and they'll say something like, something like, Martin, all I did was just, was just sit with them. I didn't do anything. And I always say to people, never underestimate the power of being with someone. Remember, I say to them, we run towards all those mental health events and sometimes physical events that everybody else runs away from. And we choose to do that. And that's incredibly powerful. And I think that's what I bring through these experiences that I couldn't have planned, but took advantage of, and now bring what brought to July the 7th assistance centre 
learned from there and bring to my clients today. I think that's such a such a brilliant message as well. And and just building on that, why is psychotherapeutic support after crisis so important? Do you think? Um, I think the, the comedians say that timing is everything. Um, and Paolo was quite clear uh, from uh, the Live Sense Assistance Centre that sometimes when when other events happened, therapists want to go in and they go in too quickly. So so much changes after a crisis. You know, and we seek, we want, we want to find stability, some calm and some reassurance. And that takes time for people to understand what they've been through and get through that in the initial stages and then afterwards to make sense of what's going on. Um, and one of the most important interventions I think that we can have as therapists is normalisation. Uh, as a therapist, we have the... The credibility to, to help people understand that what they're going through is, is normal. They're not mad or bad or damaged. They may have been hurt. The pain is real, as is the fear. And all that needs to be, all that needs to be held to contain, to be contained, to be heard without prejudice, with compassion, acceptance, and love. Because that's the only way this sort of healing can occur. And for some people, it'll be very brief days or weeks, for others it'll take longer. And if they don't get that psychotherapeutic support, then the, the understanding, the meaning of their life and the world shifts and changes. We know that many people after July the 7th came out from the tube stations and went to work or went home. And we, we heard three or four years later of people who'd had divorces, people who'd left work. In fact, there were some people who were expecting their colleagues to turn up. And their colleagues didn't, some because they died, some because they, what they'd been through meant they made different decisions. And even the people who weren't directly caught up also had a shift in their understanding of their place in the world and what they wanted from their lives. But because they had nowhere to take that, they thought of themselves as, as being feeling guilty for having these sensations, feeling bad for wanting to make changes and not understanding what had happened in their lives, even though they weren't directly involved in the event. And therefore, psychotherapeutic support is really important. Um, and I think therapists can help clients understand what's happening to their physiology, to their bodies, because there are all these physical changes that take place how medications can help, what's both good and bad about them, and how we put our sense of the world together in our own minds. Uh, and in this way, we, we provide positive, though not necessarily comfortable interventions and education that helps the client heal. Um, resilience has been described as a swift return to normal functioning. And you can largely only achieve that with outside help. When you're in the system, when you're in the event, when you're in the dynamic, it takes a very, very skilled person to, to step out of that in order to make a change. And most of us as therapists can do that because we've trained for years to do it. But most people get stuck in that dynamic. And therefore, through being with them, through educating them where they need it, supporting them, we can help them 
create a new, a new build, a new idea of who they are. The good stuff from the past and the stuff they may want to change for the future. Thank you. I think that's a, a really good point to kind of change direction. And, and I wanted to talk to you a bit more about your training. And you, you touched a bit on, on what led mm. up to just before your training. But why did you become a psychotherapist? And, and <laughs> what prompted you to go, right, I'm going to get, get on this training and I'm going to, to do that? Um, hmm. Whether it's something in my makeup, my spirit, um, I'm just remembering that uh, at school we used to do visiting old people's homes and chat to them. And I, I suppose at the age of 12 or 13, that was my first experience of just being with people, being with people who were lonely, being with people who were close to death. One of, one of our um, clients did die whilst, um, whilst we were working with them. And so there was something connected to me that said, yeah, this is the kind of engagement that I want. Um, so it fits my values and beliefs. And what is there in life that is more important than finding out who we are and then using our skills and maybe our spirit to make a, a lasting positive impact, not necessarily in a kind of huge celebrity kind of way possibly, but just in our day-to-day -day work over time wanting to work as a psychotherapist. I used that training in the NHS um, and I found lots of turmoil in management changes in the NHS. Uh, and that led me to thinking, actually, yeah, I need to get more skilled in this. Um, but I done the first training, which gave me the basic skills, but I realized that that really wasn't enough. And this is where kind of UKCP fits in. And I think it was, um, I think it was Woody Allen, amongst others, who said that the problem with self-taught people is that they only learn what they like. And the whole point about the training that UKCP puts you through is that you have to learn things that you don't necessarily agree with or don't necessarily like. And that added to what I learned in the NHS, broadened my perspective and my understanding and gave me a huge, uh, more varied skill set that really set me on that path. So as I say, some people say, this is what I want to do. And they set out the path and they follow it. Whereas I've kind of built it as I've gone along and found out, yeah, this is important. This is how I want to work. If I want credibility, then I need to kind of expose myself to other people's judgment. That's what exams are all about. So that somebody else other than me can say, yeah, this person has reached a certain level, has committed, has invested, and has learned, and therefore has a, a wide range of abilities and skills, and is therefore, as much as anyone can be, as safe as we can be. Does that answer the question? It does, yeah. I think it was, when we were talking earlier, it was very much about um, the kind of career and how you move through that but actually you know just finding out about I did similar at school we went and visited old people's homes or or, or local older people that we knew were living alone and, and that was part of 
what what we did each year, we'd just go and knock on doors and, and have a chat and <laughs> often drop off food and things. But yeah. actually, you know, thinking of it in that way and, and, and speaking to people in in isolation and being and I think what you said before as well was really it, it comes back to that that it's just being with someone, not necessarily having to talk about things or having to do things, but just sitting in a room being with someone and that relationship and having that is the support that is often needed but that comes to that why did you become a psychotherapist it's obviously way back there and different things have led you down this path but um yeah fascinating yeah it's uh i curiously enough i my father before he died was um an electronics engineer. He designed satellites for the European Space Agency, so he was an engineer. And I was surrounded at home with what we would now call sort of science fiction books, stories. And reading those led me to understand how, how the future can be so varied. And one of my friends said, we shouldn't call it science fiction, we should call it speculative fiction. Because a lot of these stories are about what if, and supposing this decision was made rather than that decision. And I remember sitting in a cinema in 1968, watching 2001, A Space Odyssey. And apart from generating in me a kind of love for classical music, it also presented these huge kind of questions about the universe. And the fact is that not all stories are a nice, neatly tied up. Um, my husband's a great fan of um, detective novels. I think he's read the whole of Agatha Christie. And we were talking some time ago about what it is that he finds so comforting, really, about those stories. And I came to the conclusion, I think he did as well, that at the end of it, Poirot stands up and says, oh, well, this person was killed because you did this and you did that and you did the other. And it's all wrapped up at the end with a nice bow. And you all know what the motivations were, and you all know how the murder was carried out, and the mistakes that the murder were made, and it's all very clear. Come to the speculative fiction, and there's lots of open endings. And people often say to me, oh, 2001, what, what does it mean? And I say, well, what do you think it means? What does it mean to you? Um, maybe today even people want to be told what things are, and part of psychotherapy for me is about the exploration of the thing that is. Um, we see our clients for a, a very short space of time, an hour or so a week for weeks, months, perhaps a couple of years, perhaps a bit longer, but, with, but very briefly. And we will perhaps never know the full effect that we'll have on clients. And I'm, I'm quite happy with that. I'm quite happy with the relationship that I have for the time that I work with them. And the belief that I have that at some point they will uh, have a, uh, an understanding, a revelation, if you like, a change, a positive change, that will probably stay with them for the rest of their lives, even though I won't be there to witness it. So I'm quite happy for that um, unreconciled, is that the right word? The open ending or the open ended nature of psychotherapy. That fits with my understanding about that's the way the world works. Um, somebody asked, it was, it was either Alfred Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick or someone about um, making films with happy endings. Why don't you make films with happy endings? And the director said, well, 
actually it just depends on where you stop the story you can have a happy ending anywhere but when the titles close or the, the titles end the film when you close the book the story still continues when you finish psychotherapy the story of the client still continues and i'm i'm quite happy with that to have had an effect even though i may not see the results of that effect I really like your um, explanation of, of the, the kind of speculative fiction. I think that's that's brilliant. And as soon as you said about detective stories, I said I thought in my head, I know what, where this is going. It's going to everything being tied up and being finished, and yeah. <laughs> you can kind of put it in the box and go right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to know anymore. I don't think about any of that. It's yeah. yeah. Never really looked there. at things in that way. All the answers are there. We know what's what, and it's contained. Mm. Maybe maybe there's something about. I'm quite happy, given my experiences and my spirit, to be happy with the want to say uncontainedness of life. And maybe that's why I'm a bit, a bit anti-CBT particularly. But I think this desire, this industrial revolution mindset to measure everything, to fit everything into some structure, doesn't sit well with me. It's it has a certain benefit. But in my mind, it actually falls apart very quickly. It's a great way to start, but you know, it seems to be limiting in the direction of travel, and maybe even limiting in the um, in the final destination. Mm. Going to take this uh, in another different direction. Yeah. <laughs> Who is your psychotherapy or counselling hero? Mm, it's, it's a question I ask on my clients, you know, not necessarily counselling or psychotherapy hero, but heroes in general. Um, I don't really have a single one. Um, I think there are, well, I think there are too many gurus in the psychotherapy world anyway. Um, and I don't want to be <laughs> too starstruck by any single one. Um, having said that, some people I trained with in neurolinguistics, so uh, a couple of guys called Ian McDermott and Robert Diltz, who very much focus on the health aspects and the spirit aspects of the work that we do. Um, Virginia Satir worked a lot with families and constellations and was very much um, validating people's experiences and encouraging them to tell their own story in their own way with a couple of nudges and a few questions. Um, so I guess they're the people that I might hold in my mind. Um, but also outside of therapy, there's uh, Oliver Sacks, um, and Jacob Bonofsky. Uh, I remember watching The Centre Man back in the early 70s, not understanding most of it, but thinking there's, there's something here that's worth investigating and exciting. Um, and Oliver Sacks' work, and the way he weaves the stories together, and it's about people. Um, and bizarrely enough, I didn't know that Oliver Sacks was gay until after he died. And I remember thinking, how could I not have known that? But I didn't. So yeah, those are, I tend to look around and, and uh, somebody once described NLP as, I think it was Dominic Davis was giving a presentation and he described NLP as a, a therapeutic Borg, if you're a Star Trek fan, in the sense of going around uh, in an integrative, kind of integrative way, but more kind of um, absorptive way. 
ideas and people and things and putting them all together into a, a new synthesis. So I think I will not necessarily have a hero, but I might have a um, an element of somebody that's heroic that I might want to to copy or I might I might admire and might try and emulate. I think that's I think it's perfect, and I think yeah, you don't always need that one person or one aspect, but to bring different bits together to create you and what what matters. Yeah, if you think about it, I'm not a monolith. Um, I am. Uh, well, I express myself differently in different contexts, and maybe even with different clients. And so, therefore, finding different heroes or models or uh, people to admire and understanding their uh, their story, um, and then seeing whether I can apply that. And if I do, is it beneficial to me? Or even if I don't like it, it tells me something more about me. And that's incredibly important. Definitely. And um, what does being a UKCP member <laughs> mean to you, Martin? Uh, this is going to be a fun one. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the sensible professional answer is its credibility. So other people can see, actually, I have a level of skill and training and ethics uh, and support, you know, meeting other people um, and having uh, resources yeah. uh, to help me in, in the work that I do. So that, that, I think that's really, really important. And I've, I've been following all this um, scope ed business, and there's a whole other podcast probably on that. Um, however, there's always a however, isn't there? In work, over the years in working with UKCP, because it's such a broad church, I find it intensely frustrating, definitely challenging, maddeningly slow and I'm getting to, to sense that it's stuck in a world that potentially is too narrow and is in danger of being overtaken and possibly made obsolete and I think that's partly what drives the scope ed because I have this sense that given all the public um, domination or, or the public discourse dare we say on mental health I can just see there are if there aren't already, there are universities looking at this and thinking, we'll have a bit of this. And at some point in the near future, I think they're going to start running their courses and running it in their kind of academia track. And over time, that's going to attract far more people than either the BACP can or UKCP will. And I don't think, I fear that UKCP may not be flexible enough and maybe even broad-minded enough to understand that we have to let go of the modality focus of training and talk about psychotherapists, a bit like doctors. You know, you train to be a doctor and then you specialise. And I think unless UKCP follows that kind of model, not a medical model necessarily, but uh, an educational model, and, and I don't see myself as a medic, I don't treat clients I can't point to them and say, there's your depression, there's your OCD, there's your, there's your anxiety. But I can educate them about their physiology, about their psychology, about their history, and how they've got to where they are, where they are and how they can move on to where they want to be. And I, I think until the UKCP relinquishes that modality fixation, it's possibly on the road to extinction. Because others are going to come in. 
if they haven't already, and fill that gap. Is that what you expected? Not quite, but it's interesting. <laughs> because I, I think the modality piece, you touched on it earlier as well, in that trying bits out and that some didn't work for you, but actually taking that broader look and then focusing or specialising. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I'm not sure if Scopehead has done this, and it might have done it and just hasn't communicated it. But I think there's something beneficial in going across all these modalities and saying, what do they all have in common? And setting that as the, the kind of entry bar, if you like. And then people get specialising after that. But the trouble is, in order to do that, in order to gain the longevity and the development, people are going to have to let go of something. And I think people aren't yet ready to let go because the modality tends to tie into identity and people will see that as a loss of self rather than a gain of a broader community. Yeah, I can see that. And then um, it's interesting because we have done, done research about um, you know, why people and how people look for courses and, and what mm. type of courses and training. And uh, actually the, the, the type of the modality or the approach um, is one of the top reasons that they pick particular courses at this point. Um, yeah. yeah. We're still young. You know, the, um, yeah. uh, the profession is still a young one. The, the medics didn't get their um, general medical council until, what, 1848 or something, um, which, you could, which I could argue is 2,000 years after medicine first started. You know, we've only been going for a, uh, a century or so. So there's plenty of time. Yeah. And it goes back to our, our speculation as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, it does. In quite the opposite, yeah. and doing retrospective, thinking back, is there anything you wish you knew before you started your training? Oh, loads, I expect. Um, <laughs> I, as I said earlier on, you know, if, if we all knew the future, would any of us really start anything? You know, if we all knew exactly what was going to happen, we might be too terrified to, to start out. Um, I think what I've learned is that most of the trainers I've worked with, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them only knew what they'd been taught. I mean, they, they weren't broad enough in their experience and their knowledge to understand where what they've been taught, where it sits. And it was almost like being, you know, kind of repetition rather than education. And what you get from the training is the basics. It's the experience of being with a client that teaches you what no course can. So you need to get it. I, you need to, I think students, if they're listening to this, my suggestion to them is, is get out and get experience. I know there's a whole thing about being paid to do work and volunteering and that kind of stuff. But people turn hobbies into jobs. People do all sorts of voluntary work because it makes them feel good and because they can gain skills from it. And there's always going to be a bit of that. There are no kind of apprenticeships in this yet. So I think you have to get out of the, 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 the boundary, if you like, of the training course, which is useful stuff, but you've got to use it. Use it in real world examples, in real world events. 
so that you get the experience. I, I remember in my training as a supervisor, the biggest shock is probably too strong a word was the first time we did a practice and I sat in the supervisor's chair and thought, oh, okay, this is different. And it's that kind of experience, it's actually getting out there, taking what you've learned and applying it. So what I wish I'd, what I wish I'd known beforehand, um, that it's not all set, that not everyone knows exactly what they're doing. And that actually you can build a kind of portfolio as you go along. Yeah, and I think you, you really demonstrated that in our, in our discussion and how you've, you've developed that in different ways as well. Just on the practical side as well, how yeah. did you manage the logistics of training, the kind of time, cost? Um, um, well, interestingly enough, I mentioned the NHS earlier on. Um, the NHS is always going through change. And when I joined, uh, it was going through another change. And... I kind of, how should I put it, influenced, I think, is the uh, ethical world word, that change. And so um, the NHS paid for my initial training and the two levels of NLP training. Uh, and I managed to influence them to say this will be good for my management, which it was. Um, and this, then when I realised I needed to do the, the, the next two years, because they were like part-time courses for a year, um, I actually worked my packet, my pa passage, as it were. Uh, so I worked for the training organisation as a way of paying for the course. They needed some uh, needed website building, they needed some PR work, they needed leaflets writing. Um, and I said, well, how about, I, I'd be happy to do that in return for going on the course. And so that's what we did. Um, there were tense times at home because a lot of these things happened at weekends, of course. And so I disappeared over many weekends. Now I only go away for a weekend if I'm being paid. Um, and managing the logistics of training, the cost, well, getting income. I actually used to work until 9 p.m. in the evening in order to work with the clients. And now I finish at 5 or 6 p.m. And so it's extending the time finding someone to, to fund it, um, and I guess taking risks, asking, is this okay? I'd love to do this, but I can't afford it. Um, therefore, can we find another way? Uh, negotiating, so that, that's what I managed to do. That's brilliant, thank you. And what advice would you give to someone considering training as a psychotherapist or a psychotherapeutic counsellor? Um, well, it's intensely rewarding and frustrating at the same time. I don't believe it's a job you can do well if it isn't an expression of who you are, of your kind of spirit. And you have to be prepared to give something of yourself. It's not really a job you can do, although I have seen people do it kind of mechanically. You can't just go through the motions. Well, you can, but you leave behind a trail of pain, hurt and injured people. So if you can live with that, that's fine. I can't. Yeah. So it's about, if you want to do this, then there's, as in any job, there's a commitment. There's also a commitment to the ethics. There's a commitment to the, these, are, these are people, real people. It's their lives that you're engaging with. Um, 
And if you're prepared to take that risk and that responsibility, then you can have the most fabulous responses and the greatest feeling when someone comes to you with a problem, an issue that's been with them for decades sometimes. And after a few sessions, they say, actually, you know, that's not there anymore. Actually, I've got my partner back. I've got my child back. I've got my life back. There is no greater feeling in the world than working with somebody and achieving something, no matter how big or small, just achieving change, achieving difference. Thank you. And, and final question, and mm -hmm. how has training changed you? Hmm. I don't think that it's fundamentally changed me. It's focused me and given me knowledge, given me insights and plenty of tools. And well, I tend to call the way I work a philosophy rather than uh, a modality or, or toolbox. It's a philosophy that, that helps me, that's helped me structure and understand what I want out of the world. Um, and it's helped me in my, my personal life. Um, we probably know people who have been through training and have either split up from their partners or had a deeper relationship with their partners. It does a, not so much change, but refocus, give you the tools to make the decisions and the courage to make the decisions that help or help me create the life that I want. Um, although, I, although I never thought I'd be living in West London with a practice after 25 years, mm -hmm. the direction of travel was set some time ago. The detail has shifted, but the, uh, the training has given me that focus and those skills to be able to do the job that I love and to make a, an honest living out of it. And I think that's, do you know what, I think that's the perfect note to end on, Martin, and, and to hear that it's, you know, the job that you love and you've been able to make a career out of it. Mm, yeah, it, it's, it, a, it's brilliant. It's a bit of a surprise to me, but here we are. <laughs> it's only when I talk like this that I suddenly think, oh, yeah, I think it was Steve Jobs says, you can, or said, apparently, you can uh, join the dots backwards, you can't join them forwards. But joining them backwards... You think, actually, yeah, gives me confidence that I, I can make the right decision. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank, thank you so much for um, talking to me today. It's been really, really interesting. And I'm, I'm not going to read a science fiction book in the same way again. <laughs> thank you, Helen. That's great to get me thinking as well and, uh, <laughs> and to solidify some of the thoughts that I've had and to get those thoughts in order. No, it's great. And it's been really interesting hearing about the development of your career. And, and you started off really by saying, talking about broadening and having a broader view. And just mm. as, as we've been talking, it's, you know, it's really clear that that's, that's been your progression as well. It's been, you know, getting different views and broader. And whilst you talked about the training being focused, actually what that did was give you those, those tools to, to use what you already had. Yeah, yeah, that sense of confidence that I can hold differing views, change my views when I think it's appropriate, and um, help others do the same, where it benefits them. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Martin. My pleasure. Good to yeah. talk to you. Yeah, and you. It's been really nice to meet you. Thank yeah. you.
for joining me in my podcast, Therapists Talking Therapy. I look forward to your company in future podcasts.